let's just jump into it. I don't know if you guys, I don't know how many people in here are old enough to remember when the soda wars started um, between Pepsi and Coke, but um, it really was the night, the first, the first shots fired were from Pepsi. Um, back in the 1980s, they had what was they called the Pepsi Coke challenge, um, taste test challenge. And, and I remember doing it actually at the Del Mar fair is they would have like a blind taste test and you would drink Coke or drink Pepsi and decide which one you like the most. But it really kind of reached a fever pitch in the 90s when both uh, Pepsi and Coke were competing against each other across the country to try to get exclusive pouring rights, and, which is basically like the exclusive rights to be the sole um, provider of soda in the nation's school districts. And so they actually spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars getting into school districts. I mean, just one school district in New York, I remember uh, uh, I, heard, I read that uh, Coke paid $20 million just to be the sole, um, sole rights in order to be able to get into their school district. This happened all over the nation. Uh, school districts were funding their sports teams and all kinds of programs from really just money coming from Coke or Pepsi to be the exclusive rights. Now, that lasted into the 2000s when I think at some point we realized, what are we doing giving kids all these uh, sugary soda drinks? And so there was a national ban on soda in, um, in public schools. Uh, but what's interesting is you look back on that time is you find out that the soda sales in schools accounted for less than 1% of the gross sales of both Pepsi and Coca-Cola, which means that they were actually losing millions and millions and millions of dollars in this battle back and forth to try to win exclusive rights. Now, it's not that they're dumb or that they were just so um, uh, caught up in this battle with each other, they just wanted to win it no matter what cost. No, actually, Coke and Pepsi were very strategic. They know something that basically everybody knows, which is that children are malleable, children are pliable, and that they know that if they can get a, a child to prefer to drink either Pepsi or Coke when they're little, that they're likely to have, uh, most likely to have a lifetime customer for the rest of their life. They know that if they can get to a kid while the cement is still wet, that when it hardens, they're going to have a lifetime of soda. So they don't care how much money they lose uh, marketing to, to kids because they know in the long run, over the term of their life, they're going to win out. Now, that's obvious to anybody who understands children or child development. Children are sponges. They're highly moldable. In fact, science bears this out. Between childhood and adolescence, there's morphological changes that are constantly happening in the brain, so your brain is literally being rewired. Particularly in adolescence, it's called synaptogenesis, where actually synapses are being formed and neural pathways are being formed. And so people understand that if they can get their product or their idea or their um, belief in that wiring, that system, that it's going to be actually in some sense hardwired into the human brain. Especially in adolescence, they're, they're being rewired with new abilities. Physical, cognitive, and social, emotional development and habits are happening. And so you don't have to be in charge of a marketing company to know that if you can in, embed your ideas in a young person, you're likely to have a significant influence on them for the rest of their life. Again, it's not just companies that understand this, but it's, it's people who care about the future. It's people who care about the ideas of the future. This is why for the last several years and, and decades, there's been a real coordinated effort by many people to indoctrinate children and youth into secular neo-Marxist progressive worldview. They've been very intentional, in fact, in, in targeting people. I'm, I'm not actually going to make the case for that. I'm not going to give you a lot of evidence for that this morning because I think it's so numerous and it's so incontrovertible that if you've been paying even just a little smidge of attention, you will have uh, recognized that it's become very commonplace. For them to try to get their, I'll, I'll give you one example from the Van Meter household, though. The other... 
a couple weeks ago, me and my wife were having a conversation, and um, my two-year-old and four-year-old were watching Coco Melon. If you probably know what Coco Melon is, it's like the kids animated show or whatever. And we're just talking. I'm not even paying any attention. And my wife goes, wait, wait, stop. What's that? And this scene uh, played in, on Coco Melon. Go ahead and play that. Something that we know about you. You love to get up and dance. How about you break out those moves for your two biggest fans? Okay, so me and my wife are having this conversation. Our kids are watching Coco Melon, where these two gay dads um, tell their son he could be anything he wants to be. And then why don't you get out your dance? And then, and then he pulls out a tiara and a tutu and begins to dance for them. And what struck me about it was that I was totally not surprised. In fact, if you're a parent, you've had this over and over again. You've had this experience where you have, okay, okay we just can't watch that show anymore, right? I mean, it's just a constant sorting and a constant defensiveness against the recognition that there are, is messaging and there is intentionality all over the place that is targeting our kids, I almost don't even blame them because the truth is, is that they know something that we should know. The world knows something that Christians should know, which is that whoever shapes the next generation shapes the future. Whoever shapes the next generation shapes the future. Secular progressives have a vision of the future. They believe that it is more ethical and that it is better. And they are, what's interesting is they are totally willing to play the long game. In fact, they are willing in most ways to allow you to continue on in your bigoted, ignorant life, okay? As long as they can influence the next generation, they don't care because they believe your bigoted ideas are gonna die with you and they're the ones who are gonna have their messaging and their idea and their influence and their worldview produced, reproduced in the next generation. You know, we as Christians have a view of the future as well. God has given us a view of what the futures look like. And the world is actually a huge battle between these ideas. What ideas are gonna win out? What ideas are gonna inform how we're gonna move forward as a culture and a society? What ideas are gonna inform our laws and, and the way we're gonna live and the, way, the things we're gonna value, the things we're gonna think are important? There's a battle going on. And God has a view of what he wants that future to look like. It says, he tells us that he desires the knowledge of God to fill the earth. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's view of the future is that the, the knowledge and glory of God is gonna cover the entire earth in the same way that water covers the ocean. And that the, that the people are gonna be so filled with understanding and knowledge and glorification of God that it's gonna be completely immersive. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gave us his view of the future. He said, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus said, I want my disciples to go baptize, to, to go disciple the nations. I want you to go into all the world and I want you to tell everyone that you encounter about the goodness of God that the earth is his and belongs to him, that there's, there's a God in heaven and he has a name. He has a personality and he has certain things and you should live for him, you should give him glory. And so one of the things that, that calls on Christians is that we should contend for the faith in the public sphere. 
Christians should be out there at the forefront of these conversations, this clash of ideas, this clash of worldviews, and, and we should be presenting the worldview of God. We should be living out our faith, demonstrating our good deeds, arguing for the truths of Scripture in all kinds of areas, the arts, movies, music, television, politics, business, community groups. In all those things, we should be bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that the, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it belongs to him. And we should be promoting those ideas everywhere. <laughs> Christians' lives should display to everyone that's watching that there is a loving God who rules the earth and that that God is deserving of honor and he's deserving of allegiance. And so that's what God does. He sends us out as little ambassadors, as evangelists, to go into all the world and to bring the light of the gospel into dark places to tell people about the kingdom of God. But you know what? The most important place for us to, to live out our faith and for us to display the gospel is in our own homes and with our own families. Too often, Christians have made the mistake of thinking we need to go into the world and kind of present this shiny, happy people kind of thing to, to this, this, this exterior, but then at home, it doesn't always match it up. But God says, no, I, I want it very importantly to start authentically with who you are, the core of your being, with how you live your life, in your home, with your family, with your children, and I want to work out from there. Because God knows something really important too. That, that same thing that, that uh, secular progressives know, that he who, whoever shapes children shapes the future, God knows that because actually God designed the world to work like that. God made the world to work. That whoever influences kids is the one who's gonna influence the future. And so God's greatest strategy, the most powerful tool that he's given us to fill the earth with the knowledge of God is raising Christian children who love the Lord, is raising up Christian families who are rooted and standing on the word of God. That's God's plan to overcome the world. The title of my sermon this morning is World Domination Starts at Home. My original title was They're After Your Kids, but I felt that was too, like, I don't know, culture war-y. And so... Uh, I went with slightly less culture worry. World domination starts at home. God has given us, God has given us the most influence, the most power over those who are under our own, our own home and our, 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 under our, our own roof. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God nestles the authority to disciple and to raise up children in the Father. Now, the reason he, he says the Father here is because the Father in the, in the Bible represents the head of the family. And so he gives the authority to raise up and disciple children to the family. He does not give it to the government. He doesn't give it to schools. He doesn't give it to educators. He doesn't give it to professionals. He gives it to parents. That is his design. That is his, the, 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 the authority design that he's given in order to raise up these children. He's given it to families. And fathers, as the head of the family, he says that they're to discipline and get, raise up their children, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So this means all of the, the, the raising up of children. Now, what this, this doesn't mean is that the dad is the one who has to do all the work, Okay. It doesn't mean that dad is the one who needs to make sure that, that he does all the teaching and all the, uh, all the math and all the reading and all the writing and all the arithmetic. What it means is that the dad is the one whose primary responsibility to make sure the vision is happening. So like, for instance, in, in my family, we, with our kids, we homeschool our kids. And, and the way we've kind of like set it up is that my wife is the teacher and I'm the principal, okay? So that's kind of like 
how we think about it in our family, right? I go to work. Typically, my wife stays home. She uh, is the one primarily responsible for taking our kids through the lessons. But it's my responsibility to make sure that our home and our little schoolhouse there with our little six kids is functioning the way that God intended and God designed it to do. And so the, 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 no matter what it is that you do, too, for too long, Christians, many Christians have gone along, along with the, the, the public school playbook where we somehow just send our kids off to school and we let the government educate them and we think that we're doing a good job because they're learning how to read or they're learning how to do math. That absolutely is not what it is that God has called us to do. God has called parents to take front and center primary responsibility about the development and the education of their children. So I want to I drill down on this verse, though, because I think this verse actually says a lot more than it does in, in, uh, at, than our first look at it. It says that Paul writes that to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's saying something that's not immediately obvious to us. It's saying that he intends for our kids to grow up in a world that is totally gospel-centered that is totally fill, filled with immersive, immersed in the gospel. We're fooling ourselves to think that we can compartmentalize things like reading, writing, math, and science and send our kids off to learn about those things and then come back home and we can teach them about God and Christianity. Or so oftentimes, I think a lot of times Christians' default has been we'll send them off to public school and then we'll send them off to church to learn about God and then kind of we're doing a good job as parents. That's not the perspective the Bible gives. The Bible gives the, the perspective that your entire home life will be inculcated by this, this worldview of honoring and loving God in all these different ways and spheres. It, the reason I'm saying that in part is because when it says here, um, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. The, the Greek word there for discipline is the Greek word paeia. And the paella of the Lord, or the, I'm sorry, paideia of the Lord. The paella is the Spanish dish. It's delicious. <laughs> paideia is the Greek word for. Um, and this would have been, to, to, to the people Paul was writing to, we don't really have a good English word for this because it's a huge word. It's a massive word. Paideia, if, if you look there, the, the definition is that the whole training and education of children relates to the cultivation of the mind and morals and employs for this purpose commands and admonitions, reproof and punishment. It also includes the training and care of the body. This is the, the whole person, the whole way that someone thinks and approaches the world, the whole worldview, not just your cognitive ability, not just your, your um, subjects in school, but your ethics and your morals and your, your, um, the way you relate to people. All of that is included in this word paideia. This is, this is a super common word in the Greek that they understood that, that the paideia was what you're trying to attack, attract the whole person. You're trying to, um, to deal with the entire being. And then he says the, 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 um, the discipline and instruction, and the word instruction there is the word nuthesia. And nuthesia means um, to, to drill into or to, to teach or to command. And so the idea here, the picture here, is of parents taking the responsibility to 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 the formation of their, their children in, in totality, that all of them and all the different parts of them would, would be to love God and to serve him and to seek him out. We've made a big mistake in modern education where we think that we can just, you can go to your math class and go to your English class and you can deal with all these subjects and you can learn. That's totally false. In fact, we're, we're teaching, what we're, what we're doing in education is what we're, what we're intended to do is to actually train the entire soul of a person. 
We're supposed to, we're trying to form and shape the entire soul. Um, I don't know why all my illustrations are from the 80s today, but um, if you remember in The Karate Kid, right? Uh, basic idea behind The Karate Kid is Danny LaRusso, he's being bullied by some uh, karate guys at school. And, um, and at some point he finds out that the guy who is the handyman, uh, Mr. Miyagi, in his, uh, in his shop, he knows karate. And so he says, will you teach me? And so Mr. Miyagi invites him over to his house and he has him, uh, he says, here's a, a bucket of paint, go ahead and paint the fence, right? And he teaches him how to paint the fence. And then he says, okay, I got this floor. I want you to sand this floor. And he's sanding the floor all day long. And then at the end of the day, he says, I want you to wash all these cars. I want you to, this is where the wax on, wax off, right? The famous, if you grew up in the 80s, you know that wax on, wax off was like a, the line from the movie. Um, and, uh, and at the end of the day, Dan Lewis says, I'm fed up. I, don't, I, don't, I came here to learn karate, not to do all your chores for you, right? Mr. Maggie says, put it down. He puts it down. And he says, wax on, wax off. And he teaches them that he's showing them how to block and how to, these, he's, he's trying to, He's trying to get into his muscle memory these different moves that are kind of at the center of Miyagi-Do karate, right? That's like the idea of what he's trying to train him up. Well, listen, a lot of times when we're teaching people, this is why I talk to, to students about this all the time, what we're trying to teach you is not just how to, how to pass a spelling test. I'm trying to teach you how to think, how to problem solve, how to approach the world. I don't want you just to be able to know the math or know the physics. I want you to know what is the physics for? What does it point to? It points to a rational God who set limits, who designs a world who you can count on, you can trust. All of these things are inductive of an entire understanding, an entire worldview. And we want to be producing children. Christian children deserve a Christian education. One with God at the center. What we've done in public schools, we said, we're not actually going to allow any talk about God or any understanding about God. The Bible says that the fear of God, the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. How would you think that anyone's ever gonna gain any understanding if we're saying the foundation of all wisdom, we're removing it? We're not gonna tell you about it. <laughs> and so what, is a, what a proper education is one that is centered and built up from the ground at the foundation is God and his principles is his world. He assigns the way that it works. The Bible understands this. When Jesus said, he was approached by a, a, fair, he was approached by a, a lawyer, and he says, what's the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12? And starting in verse uh, 29, he says, Jesus answered and said, the foremost commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The greatest commandment is this, is to love God with everything you are, with your whole person. With your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Jesus' answer is to quote Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, what's interesting is you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says that, that you'll find it says in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But here, so it has three things. Your heart, your soul, your might. And then in, in Jesus' teaching, he says, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the reason is because there's a, in the Hebrew, that word for might is one word, but Jesus translates it as two different words in the Greek. He says that that, that word might is actually the, what, what it's trying to get at is your mind and your strength. Now, what's cool about that is we can know that that's actually the right interpretation of that verse because it's Jesus who's interpreting it, Right? And so he says, with all of who you are, with your heart and with your soul, your entire being, with your mind and all of your strength, you want to love God. 
True education is learning to love God with all that you are. Helping students to love, obey, revere, wonder, marvel, fear God with their mind is the point of education. And in Deuteronomy 6, where Jesus is quoting, this is what it says. It's, it's a, it's a, if, you, if you pull out and see the larger context, this is what, here's what it says. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. He says that this command is a generational commandment. It's not just for you. It's not just that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's that you and your sons and your grandsons, your, your daughters and your granddaughters, that you would all, you would leave a legacy of loving and honoring God. Then in verse four, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The view here is that when, when you wake up in the morning, you should be talking about the commands and laws of God. When, you, when you're walking along the way, you should be talking about God's kindness and his greatness and his beauty. When you lie down, when you're sitting in your house, all of your life should be filled and you should be bringing along the next generation and shaping them in what God has shown you and what God has revealed to you about the power and the truth of the gospel. It says that you should bind them on your forehead and, and, and on your arm. Several years ago, I was on a flight to Israel and it's like a long, it's like a, I don't know, 20-hour flight, something like that. And we're somewhere over the, the um, Atlantic Ocean. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I see these guys, these Middle Eastern guys, get up. And they, they um, put this thing over their head. And they've got this box on their forehead. I've never seen anything like this before. They wrap it around. They wrap it on their arm. And I'm just thinking like, okay, this is clearly a terrorism thing. Um, <laughs> it's go time. Like, let's do it. I've been preparing mentally for this for many years. Um, <laughs> And so right as I begin to, like, I, I think, like, okay, let's just wait a second, figure out what's going on here. And these guys, what they're doing is they're, they're praying the Shema. They're praying this prayer that Jews have been doing ever since is that they have this leather rope that they bind on their right arm, and they have this, this uh, box that has this leather box that contains these, these scriptures on their forehead. And they're taking really serious to keep the love of God at the forefront of their minds, at the forefront of their hearts constantly every day. Now, they're missing something really essential about the, uh, they have a, um, I think it's called a mezuzah. Mezuzah, thank you. Um, uh, on every door you go into, there's this little box or this little um, design thing on, on, in Israel largely, or a lot of Jewish homes will have it. And they have this little box that, that's them putting on their, on their doorpost. And a lot of times you'll see people, they'll come into a restaurant and like all these Jews will touch it and they'll, they'll kiss their hand and they'll touch it. And they're just reminding themselves, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hero Israel, that the, the love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That, there's something that is, can be religious about that and can be whatever, but there's something about it that is admirable that we should be taking very serious our mission and our job to not only keep front and center in our hearts and in our lives 
that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but that we're passing that on to the next generation. That is central what it's called, what it's called to be a Christian, to walk faithfully with God, is to pass on. We need to take that long view that we're not just living for ourselves, but we're living for something in the future. We're living for generational faithfulness. A Christian education is not simply a Christian version of a secular education. It's not just secular education with prayer and some verses on the wall. It goes all the way back to the greatest commandment to love God with everything we are. It's a long-term proposition. Not only is, is the command to teach, but the reward is for us. That will, go, that will go well with us. That our lives will be extended and that we'll be able to enjoy God and see his hand in the land of the living. Our church has been making a massive bet, a massive investment in the future. We feel very much like God has called our church to be faithful, to raise up the next generation. We're seeing it in, in lots of different ways. One of the ways you're, you're seeing in this transition here at this church where um, uh, Mark and Dave and our founding pastors and some of the founding guys, they're getting towards retirement age. And there's a next generation there that's been trained up that's been prepared, that's ready to take on the reins. You know, it's interesting when you think about it is, is that the next generation of who's gonna take over this church in the next generation, they're probably 15 years old right now. They're probably around that age. And, and what we wanna do is what was faithfully done for us is that Christians invested in that next generation and raising up people who love God, whose minds and hearts have been shaped by the scriptures who have been taught and understand God's principles and how to follow him and how to obey him. Talking about public education and, and education in general um, has been what, what um, Jim, James, what was his name? Not uh, Garlo, but uh, no. Gilbert, thanks. Jim Gilbert. He's a pastor who came here. He said several years ago, he said, you know, talking about Christian education is like the third rail in church. It's the one you can't touch. Because Christians for a long time, we've just gone along with the program that public education is the way to go. And, um, and you know, times when I've brought up uh, talking, challenging people that you got to get your kids out of public schools um, uh, is one of the most offensive things I think I've done. I think I've burned some bridges and people have been offended. And so I want to I clarify some of what I mean, some of what I don't mean. Um, increasingly, it's, it's become less controversial. Uh, and the reason is because increasingly you can see the progressive agenda that's being played out on our kids in public schools, especially since COVID. It just has become more and more and more obvious what's going on. But what I don't mean is I don't mean that Christian teachers in public school are doing something wrong. In fact, just the opposite. I think, they, I, think, I think teachers who are teaching in public schools deserve our respect, deserve our honor, that those guys oftentimes are, are serving the Lord and they're doing noble work and they're doing work that God has called them to. They're being a light there. They're loving on kids. In my home group, I think there's, there's five public school teachers, and so we want to honor public school teachers that have, that have said yes to that mission. But um, uh, what, we, what we don't do is we don't send our kids, the same way we don't send our kids into war, we don't send our kids into the public school system to be lights and evangelists. That's not what they're called to do. They're called to be shaped. They're called to be educated. They're called to be raised up. And then when they're adults, we can send them in there. But it's not right as a kid is going to school in order to be shaped, 
in order to be challenged, in order to grow, that we would send them to public school, okay? Um, I'm also not saying that we abandon the public schools. Um, we have, our church has made very much a, a center part of our, our youth ministry to reach out to public schools, to have uh, sunshine clubs and higher ground clubs in, in junior high and, and elementary schools, to have Christian clubs in high school. We, wanna, we recognize there's Christian kids on those campuses, there's kids who need the gospel there. We want to be a part of going in and witnessing and evangelizing schools. And so I'm not saying we give up on public schools. I'm not also want to recognize that there's some people that public school really is your best option or the, the only option you have. There's kids with disabilities, and, um, and a lot of times the, the kinds of resources they need is they're right now, currently, they're just going to get them at public school. That's the only one that's really available to them. Um, and there's also there's broken families, and there's people who, because of divorce, where one parent is totally opposed to their kid going to a Christian school, something like that. So I want to recognize there are different reasons and different circumstances that somebody might have their kid in public school. And, and so we're not trying to put shame on anybody or anything like that. But for the vast majority of people, the right answer is for you to, to that Christian kids deserve a Christian education and that we should be raising our kids to, to love God. And so I want to um, kind of address a couple things in that regard. Um, one is, is that a lot of times the main barrier to sending your kid to a Christian school is that it costs extra. It costs more. So for many of us, um, we have, I went to public school my whole life. We've kind of just accepted the reality that we pay our taxes and we kind of sh share the, the cost across a, a wide thing. And so we think that sending your kid to public school is free. Well, the reality is it's not free. Um, uh, there's a couple things. One is it costs way more to educate a kid in a public school than it does to educate a kid in a private school. Almost, you can almost go to the most expensive private schools and they're doing it for cheaper than public school actually is doing it for. The, the actual public school cost is exorbitant and it's, it, it's outrageous. That's for several reasons. But two, if we take the long view of what we're doing with kids, trying to educate kids, you're not actually saving yourself a lot of heartache and a lot of help. Um, sometimes uh, in the moment it can, say, it can seem like, man, I, just, I don't think we can swing it financially or it seems like a big investment. But I want to challenge you that uh, the, the future of your kid and all the dividends they're going to pay off from that investment is actually something that is a wise investment and it's worth it. Um, so in, in thinking about that, I want to say yesterday we had, our church has for many decades been working really hard to help come alongside parents, support them, challenge them. We don't see this as just a parent's responsibility. We see this as our church's responsibility. And so uh, just yesterday we had a conference here, uh, a Christian education conference, to help people know what resources are available to you um, in order to, to educate your kids in a Christian way. If you go out to the information booth, the, the connections table, they have some flyers that kind of outline some of the different models, hybrid, the contact information, um, uh, private schools, homeschool, some of those different models, okay? But I wanna say something that, that Gina said on the announcement video. She, you know, if you don't think you can do it, whether it's financial, whether it's schedule, whatever it is, I want to challenge you to pray and ask God, God, would you help me in this area? To take a step of faith. And this is not just about school. This is about all kinds of things in life. But when God calls you to do something, it's his responsibility to equip you to do it. It's his responsibility to help you figure out where the money's going to come from. And so if you don't know where the money's going to come from, I want to challenge you. This next month, uh, for the last few years, we've done this message on Christian education the third week in January. Because in February, we have early um, uh, a registration. So if you, when you came in here, uh, you got this flyer. If you want to take this out, just really quick. Um, we have preferred enrollment for Foothills families at all three of our schools. 
And I want to encourage you that it tells you how to go about doing it, call to make an appointment, ask questions, find out. I want to challenge you, take a step of faith and go find out. Sign your kid, even if you think you can't afford it, sign your kid up and see if God doesn't open a door. See if God doesn't make a way um, for, for your family. Um, the other part of that though is that there's a QR code on here, which is the last few years we have taken an offering in January in order to, to, to fund a scholarship fund for the kids in our church to be able to get a Christian education. Last year, we raised over $180,000 from our scholarship fund. We're on track. We're on track this school year. I want to invite the band up here. We're on track this school year to give over $200,000 in scholarships to students to, to get them into Christian education. Our prayer and hope is that there's not one kid, there's not one family in our church who says, I can't afford to send my kids to a Christian education. We want to come alongside and want to resource. Well, what that requires is it requires for us as a church to take that serious, okay? You might be in a position right now where you don't have kids that are at, a, at school age. Your kids could be out of the house. They could be grown. You could not have kids. Um, but we don't see this as just a family's problem. We see this as a mission for our church to make an investment to make an investment in the future. And here's something I can tell you about the future. The future, more than ever, is gonna need people who love God and who are, understand the way the world works. They're gonna have to solve some really hard problems that are facing our country and our society coming up here in the future. We wanna make an investment that those kids are gonna be well-trained and those kids are gonna be well um, understood to approach the problems of the world and they're gonna be able to do it filled with the Holy Spirit and in love with God and understanding his principles. And so we have the opportunity to make an investment in that. So the way you can do that is if you, um, there's this, this blue envelope on here. If you wanna make a one-time gift, a check or um, cash, you can put it in that envelope and you can drop it on the um, offering boxes on the way out. There's also a QR code there you can give or you, if you know how to give online, you can just go on the app and, and give. And there's two options. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. And if you say, hey, I just wanna be a part of the solution here. I want to be a part of investing in the future of the Christian kids and raising up a generation of people who know and understand and love God, then we want to invite you to be a part of that and take that seriously at church. One of the cool things is that a family in this church has given a $50,000 matching grant. And so what that means is for every dollar you give, they're going to match it up to $50,000 total. And so um, that gives us a really good head start in this year's scholarship form. Would you guys stand to your feet?